0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now before I dive back into the Forgotten Victim series, I'm going to give the usual heads up that the content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. In episode 25, I detailed my analysis and profile of PS from the Crime Scene Behaviour and Crime Scene Analysis. What did you make of that? Now, as I said, I kept true to the process and opined on the behaviour at the crime scenes and what it revealed about the perpetrator. Primarily, I focused on the A1 offences, but I did mention the 19-year-old unnamed typist, given the uncanny likeness of the photo fit. And of course, I talked about the photo fits again. And I'm going to return to the photo fits in my penultimate episode of the series. Yep, I'm not done yet. I can't leave them alone. Okay, so back to the profile. Interestingly, I discovered that two FBI profilers did weigh in at the time on this case. Well, back in 1979. Were you aware of that? Well, admittedly, to me, this is a new discovery, and I think you'd be interested in what they had to say. Am I right? Okay, so let me tell you. So, I discovered that Robert Ressler and John Douglas from the FBI met informally with Detective Superintendent John DeMarle in 1979, Now, they talked about the case over a few beers. That used to be very common, by the way, an informal conversation over drinks, and it still is. Albeit now, when I meet, it tends to involve coffees rather than beers, and more often than not, and certainly of late, it's in the virtual world. So Robert Ressler, or Bob as he was known, and John had scheduled meetings with the police college at Brams Hill in England in 1979. Now, that was during the time that West Yorkshire Police, well, Chief Constable Ronald Gregory, decided to pour another £1 million into a new publicity effort using the tapes and the handwriting against New Scotland Yard's advice. Now, I've talked about the police college at Brams Hill in previous episodes. I've trained there too, and of course at the FBI, at the very department Bob and John were both from, and I've worked with John Douglas. They were the first-generation profilers. You've probably heard about their work as we talk about it on Real Crime Profile, or maybe you've heard about it from the Netflix show Mindhunter, which is based on John Douglas's book of the same title. Well, the purpose of their visit was to make inroads at Bram's Hill and set up an exchange programme of some sort. Now, I spent three months at Quantico in their old department, the BAUs, the Behavioural Analysis Units, and I would have jumped at the chance of setting up a continued exchange programme at New Scotland Yard. Now, for those of you who don't know the history, here's retired FBI profiler and supervisory special agent Jim Clementi to tell you more.
0: The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit is part of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. And as such, we study all violent and sexual crimes across this country and much of it around the world so that we can then train law enforcement so that they can get the benefit of our research in our training. The original FBI profilers, Dick Ault, John Douglas, Roy Hazelwood, Robert Ressler, Pete Smerrick. They gained this body of knowledge by actually going into prisons and interviewing convicted serial killers. They interviewed them in great detail about what they did and also how they grew up and how they felt during the entire time that they were killing people, developing this criminal expertise, and that they were getting away with these crimes. For example, from Ed Kemper, they learned that he had a very difficult relationship with his mother. So he started killing surrogates in place of her and then he killed his mother. David Berkowitz showed how sexual frustration can be taken out on innocent people on the streets of New York. From Ted Bundy, they learned that he was a sexual sadist, that he got off on causing and witnessing the pain and suffering of others. But he did that many times by using his psychopathic charm to lure in victims, and he feigned injury so that it was the people who wanted to help him that he ended up killing. So now we have an amazing volume of institutional knowledge about these offenders. And it tells us how they killed and why they killed. And it helps us to hunt them down.
1: Now, sadly, Bob passed away a few years ago. But like I said, he was one of the first generation profilers who learned the psychological principles involved from pioneers like Howard Teton and Patrick Mullaney when he joined their unit in 1974. Bob worked at what became known as the Behavioural Science Unit, the BSU, at Quantico, and my unit at New Scotland Yard was modelled after the BSU and was called the Sexual Offences Section. Bob introduced several programmes that contributed to the development of the National Centre for the Analysis of Violent Crime at Quantico and sometimes went to other countries to teach. Well, back to the meeting with Detective Superintendent John DeMarle, Bob and John asked to see the crime scene photos and from that they would offer their analysis. But they were denied. Now, although the BSU was just beginning to gain recognition when Bob and John were in England in 1979, there was a fair amount of resistance to criminal behavioural analysis and that surprised Bob. But sadly, that doesn't surprise me. There's actually been continual resistance to it. And when you go back in time, I can imagine even more so, particularly with a foreign agency advocating for a new way of doing business, I doubt that was going to go down particularly well. And unfortunately, this rang true with regards to this very case. They weren't permitted to see the photos, but Detective Superintendent John DeMarle said they would be able to listen to the tape. Now, the tape had been made public, so there was no issue with this. And it's interesting that both Bob and John opined that the person who made the tape was not the killer. They opined from what they had been told about the crime scenes and the offender's behaviour that he would much more likely be an introvert. The person who made the tape was much more likely extroverted and enjoyed taunting the police. They believed the killer would have reason for being in the area and would not stand out. They opined that he might be a taxi driver, mail carrier or truck driver making deliveries. They believed that he hated women, although he had a relationship with a woman, but that he had serious mental health issues. They offered a few more ideas, but they cautioned that without the photos and the reports, that they were somewhat winging it. Again, Bob requested access to the photos so that he could do a more accurate profile, but learned that Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield prohibited it. He apparently disliked being second-guessed about his theories or being viewed as a man so easily duped. They'd find the killer on their own. Well, that's amazing, really, but it's consistent across the board, and it still goes on now. That old adage, we don't need outside help, we're good, thank you, and even help from those who've studied killers and know what they're talking about. So that's now New Scotland Yard and the FBI whose help and assistance was refused. It's unconscionable and clearly highlights egos getting in the way of solving this case. But what I will say is this, without seeing the crime scene photos, it's a real challenge to say anything more detailed about a perpetrator, You see, what happens at the scene, the offender's decision-making and how he interacts with the victim reveals the motive. It's so important to understand motivation, as I've said many times before. It takes you to the whom. The who committed it. And there's no substitute for experience. The experienced investigator or criminal behavioural analyst or CSI, or hopefully all three working together with a catalogue of past cases that they can compare and contrast one scene from another. An inexperienced investigator or analyst doesn't have this. And so, no, it's not good practice to opine on a case without having seen the crime scene photos. And so they were right to say that they couldn't go any further without access to the photos and more information. Now, it's one of the key reasons why I said that without access, I couldn't say anything more regarding the other potentially linked offences. As I said, those other potentially linked offences that I talked through need to be thoroughly investigated and compared and contrasted against PS's timeline. I strongly recommend that this happens, and it should have happened when PS was initially arrested and those offences should have been put to him when he was confessing and cooperating with the police. Okay, so I want to spend some time in this episode talking about P.S.'s history. What was known about P.S. once he was arrested? Well, at the time of his arrest, P.S. was 34 years old. He was a lorry driver from Bradford. He was born on June 2nd, 1946, in Bingley, West Yorkshire. In fact, he had lived near Bradford his entire life. And so he was very local, and so the victims were right. This is exactly what Tracy, Olive, Marcella, Marilyn Moe, and many others told the police. P.S. was 5 foot 8 inches tall and of slight build. Now remember from the crime scene analysis... We knew that the killer wore a size 7 boot and so it would make sense that he was of slight build and only 5 foot 8. He wasn't tall or threatening and certainly not the tall and large beastly monster the moniker conjured up or what they thought he would be. Well, I opined that from his actions at the crime scenes, the how he was attacking the women, incapacitating them first from behind in a blitz-style attack with a hammer. But importantly, before he attacked them, he would speak with them. He would talk to them and put them at ease. Now, P.S. had a higher-pitched, reedy and slightly squeaky voice. You really have to hear it to understand what I'm talking about. And there are some recordings online. And I believe his higher-pitched voice disarmed victims as he didn't sound an in inverted commas scary, which sounds ridiculous on its own, but I do believe that how he sounded along with his local accent and his physical stature and demeanour would most likely mean most women would read him as being non-threatening. And remember, just before P.S. attacked Josephine Whittaker, he said, You can't trust anyone these days. Trying to give her the impression that he was safe... Now again, my interpretation of this is that he enjoyed the game and that he was also sadistic. It gave him a thrill to manipulate the victims and to con them into thinking he was a protector of sorts and that he was safe. He, of course, knows exactly what's coming. This tells me he's enjoying it and again points to sadism. I believe he enjoyed disarming the women. It was all part of the challenge. And what I would also say is that it absolutely doesn't mean that someone's dangerous, even if they appear friendly or safe. It can be a ruse, a con, a manipulation. And just because they have a wedding band on, that doesn't make a man safe either. And yes, P.S. was married. He married Sonia Surma on August 10th, 1974, which was also her 24th birthday. And P.S. was 28 years old. Now, two friends turned down P.S. when he asked them to be his best man, which is very interesting. And they first lived together at Sonia's parents' house in Clayton. And later, from the 26th of September 1977, they moved into a detached house, which he bought in the Heaton district of Bradford. At the time of his marriage, PS owned a lime green Ford Capri car with the registered number EUA831K. He loved cars and he would change them frequently. Well, we're certainly aware of that now. So he was a married man, a family man, an unremarkable man, a quiet man, a man who wouldn't say boo to a goose, an ordinary man, an awkward man a man with a dark sense of humour. These are all the things that I've heard him described as, but mostly ordinary and unremarkable. And so on the face of it, everyone said that he seemed so normal. Yes, and that's on the face of it, and that's exactly why he was never suspected. Well, lots of people can appear normal on the surface, and just because you're married or a so-called family man that absolutely does not mean that you're normal or that you're not dangerous. And I want to spend a moment deconstructing risk and dangerousness. A lot of my analysis and research in casework has been focused on domestic violence and domestic abusers, coercive controllers, stalkers and serial offenders who kill, and I have a lot to say about it, particularly when it comes to risk and dangerousness. In terms of what does risk and dangerousness look like in reality? Versus what do people think it looks like? And when I say people, I'm talking about professionals too. Many people were shocked to find out PS was married. Now, what I will say from 25 years of profiling killers is that serial killers can and do get married. They're not all loners, they can and do have relationships with women. Some have children too. And this allows them to hide in plain sight. Which leads me on to the second most commonly asked question about this case. Well, it's really three questions, actually. The first being, well, if he was married, what was the relationship like? The next question is, well, what was his wife Sonia like? And then, what did Sonia know? The one thing that is consistent in most cases that I've worked on is that it always, always leads back to a woman. The mother, the wife, or the girlfriend. You see, no matter what a man does, everyone wants to know about the woman. So just think about Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr for a moment, and how the media treated Maxine, a repeat victim of domestic abuse, who wasn't even at home when the girls, Holly and Jessica, were abducted, most likely raped and then murdered by Ian Huntley. But that didn't stop the media vilifying Maxine Carr and treating her like Myra Hindley Mark II. In fact, Maxine was treated worse than Ian Huntley by the media and almost as if she were the lead actor, which I want to make very clear she wasn't. Her only crime was lying for him post-offence. And knowing the case as I do there was a reason why she lied. And I discuss this case in training, and I'll probably cover it in a future episode. And what about Shanann, Bella, Cece and Nico Watts, who were murdered by Chris Watts? First, the focus of many was firmly on Shanann, and people commented on how, in inverted commas, bossy she was, due to her using Facebook for her business and posting videos. And then when it was discovered that Chris Watts was having an affair the focus was then turned to the, inverted commas, mistress, Nicole Kessinger. And it really is quite staggering how many people then said that Nicole Kessinger must have had something to do with the murders. Well, let's just think about the word mistress for a moment. That word is loaded and sexist, just in the framing of her. What we do know is that Chris Watts acted alone alone. But there are still people who believe the girlfriend had something to do with the murders, despite there being zero evidence that points in her direction. In fact, all the evidence points to Chris Watts, including his own words and his own confession. Now, these are just two examples, but it happens in most cases that I've been involved with, sadly. Now, vis-a-vis Sonia, PS's ex-wife, and other cases... Once I know that there's a wife or even with ex-partners, I do always request a statement from them and or request to interview the wife or ex-wife or ex-partners as they hold the mirror up to the perpetrator's behaviour. I'm interested specifically in whether there was domestic abuse and or coercive control. If they are or have been coercively controlled, and are supportive of the abuser, this is instructive for me too and paints a picture of high levels of manipulation used by the perpetrator. And in most cases, the wife, the ex-wife and or ex-partners are, after all, arguably the person who knows the perpetrator the best. I was really curious about this in 2001 when I was working at New Scotland Yard. I spent my first five years in the sexual offences section profiling stranger rape, murder and abduction cases. I worked on many cases, some of them high profile and many that were not. And what became apparent to me was that many of the perpetrators, once we arrested them, had been married or in significant relationships and had raped or abused their female partners. Now that didn't surprise me, but what piqued my interest was whether these cases were anomalies whether they were outliers, or if I took a larger sample of offenders, would I see the same finding, i.e. that they raped women they were in significant relationships with, as well as strangers. And when I was approached to work on a new team called the Understanding and Responding to Hate Crime team, which was a targeted policing initiative run by the Home Office, I agreed, as I wanted to profile domestic violence rapists backwards, a reverse engineering, if you will, and find out who they were and what else they were up to, behaviorally speaking. Did they only harm significant people in their lives, as the literature would detail, or did they offend outside the home too and hurt and rape others? Well, that led me to analyse 452 domestic violence, sexual and serious offenders, and I published a paper about it called Getting Away With It, a profile of the domestic abuse, sexual offenders and serious offenders. I started the research and analysis in 2001, and I published the report in 2004. And it's not because I'm a slow writer, by the way. It's because the significant women who had the courage to report them to the Metropolitan Police Service for rape and sexual violence, were 75% of them were raped after they separated from the abuser, which is why separation increases the risk for the victims and their children, as well as the fact that I found one in 12 of the perpetrators were raping other women outside the home and one in eight were committing serious violence outside the home, which meant that I had to do proactive work with a team proactively targeting these perpetrators, which is why it took me some time to publish the report because I had to work operationally first and foremost because the risks of not doing anything were so great. And so quickly this became an operational piece of work targeting these violent men. And this was the first time this had been done proactively nationally or internationally. And it's the reason that I'm still campaigning 20 years later for serial domestic violence abusers and stalkers to be targeted in exactly this way across the UK, and information and intelligence to be collected on them nationally. They are dangerous men, many of whom are unconvicted." And my analysis shattered a lot of myths about violent men and rapists as well as informed the development of the domestic abuse, stalking and harassment and honour-based violence risk identification assessment and management model which most police services and partner agencies use in England and Wales. There's a basic behavioural premise that I use to help others understand the link between domestic violence and stranger rapists and just how dangerous these men are and it's this. If you're prepared to harm, rape and torture the woman or women in your life that you're supposed to care for, love and cherish the most, what are you prepared to do to a woman you know and don't care about? Rape is about power and control. Domestic abuse is about power and control. Supercharged, entitled men commit both. Many of them, as I've said, are unconvicted. So we have to make the links I'll post the link to my research in the show notes and it's also cited in my book, Policing Domestic Violence, published by Oxford University Press. Okay, so one of the questions I'm always interested in is how two people met. And so in this case, I'm going to tell you about how P.S. and Sonia got together. Sonia was 15 years old when she met P.S. at the Royal Standard Pub. He was 19 years old. Now I would imagine that he picked her, i.e. he targeted her in the pub and started talking to her. But what I will tell you is that I don't know that for sure. But I do know from working the cases that a skilled offender targets a particular victim for a particular reason. Not you, not you, not you, but you. And due to his age, remember he was 19 and she was 15, just a child, I would believe him more likely to make the first move. Now, neither had dated other people, but they instantly were attracted to each other and they started courting. And remember I told you in a previous episode that one night Sonia went out with another man, the Italian ice cream man, and that was in 1969, and P.S. was angry. Well, the upshot of his anger was that he went to see a prostitute to get back at Sonia to take revenge and make her pay, but it was the unnamed prostitute who paid. He attacked her with a stone and a sock, and I'm going to come back to that. Now, with Sonia, he played the role of a doting family man, but he wasn't faithful to her. His friend said that he would pester women, in inverted commas, when he was out. or well, he harassed Fred Craven's daughter, Anna Rogelski, Carol Wilkinson, and he also argued with her dad. Now, how his behavior was described and characterized was that he pestered women, Well, the challenge is, when you use the word pester or call someone a sex pest, most often you're masking and minimising their behaviour. It's sexual harassment, so we should call it what it is. And P.S. also had other girlfriends. I've already talked about 35-year-old Teresa Douglas in Holytown, Lanarkshire, who he'd stay overnight with. Now I'm going to come back to Sonia. First of all, I want to go back in time to what was known about P.S., and excavate his past before he met Sonia. Now, P.S. was born in Shipley, West Yorkshire, on the 2nd of June, 1946. He was one of six children born to Kathleen and John Sutcliffe. P.S. was born prematurely and spent an extra two weeks in hospital with his mother. As P.S. grew up, he was constantly bullied for his small stature and his skinny legs. He was also described as incredibly clingy, reluctant to leave his mother's side, and it was noted that he had difficulty socialising with other children. And you heard from Sharon Boyle that his mother Kathleen doted on him, and he on her. But he was bullied at primary and secondary school for being small and having skinny legs, and that would upset him, and he had truant from school. You also heard from Sharon that his father, John Sutcliffe, saw P.S. as weak and weedy and said that he was a mummy's boy. John Sutcliffe was an alpha male, sports mad, and he was abusive to Kathleen and also to the children. Now, isn't it interesting that when Sharon Boyle interviewed John Sutcliffe, he talked about P.S. in glowing terms, that he was proud of his lad, the serial killer. Well, that speaks volumes and shows that they were much more aligned, after all, in their values and levels of misogyny. Oh, and by the way, I was contacted by a woman who I won't name, who was one of John Sutcliffe's nurses, and she said how horrific he was towards women, that he was a total misogynist, and that he sexually harassed the nurses. Well, sadly, that's no surprise to me, unfortunately. Well, his behaviour was consistent, right up to his last days. Carl Sutcliffe, P.S.'s younger brother, who's still alive today, said that his father was a drinker and a womaniser who cheated on Kathleen and abused her and them. He said that John, his dad, once smashed a pint glass over P.S.'s head for sitting in his chair, and he used to belt the hell out of them when they were kids. The children also watched as John Sutcliffe beat and humiliated Kathleen in front of them. Now, the impact, as always, was different for all of the children. But I do want to make the point here that the children were not witnesses to abuse and violence. They were victims in their own right. And being subjected to abuse results in complex PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In training, I talk about this a lot and quote Basil van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I highly recommend that you read. If left unresolved, trauma continues to reside in the body on a cellular level and it will come out at some point physiologically, psychologically, emotionally and it normally manifests as dis-ease, disease in the body. And I'm no way giving P.S. an out here or an excuse for the choices that he took as an adult but his childhood does help us understand him and shed light on his behaviour. You see, his mother was most likely put on a pedestal And John Sutcliffe shamed and abused her and called her out for breaking up the family. And I believe that P.S. also blamed her for the abuse and breaking up the family. And the irony was that it was John Sutcliffe who cheated on Kathleen. His behavior was abhorrent. He drank and he cheated on her. He abused her and the children. And yet he wasn't held to account. And his behavior wasn't seen as the problem, most likely because he was the man. Now, the double standard is obvious and striking. Noticeably, it wasn't his father and men that P.S. held accountable and punished. It was women. And as I've said before, it's much easier to blame women for men's violence. So, P.S. was a loner at school. He didn't fit in in the playground. He left school when he was 15 and drifted in and out of unskilled and semi skilled jobs in the Bradford area, which included time spent as a grave digger a factory worker, door-to-door salesman, and a lorry driver. Okay, so there's the gravedigger. And during this spell, he often worked in the mortuary. It makes sense now. You see, he wasn't always a lorry driver, but the necrophilia I understood from his crime scene behaviour, the fact he wanted to spend time with the victims when they were dead, the fact that he was sexually aroused when he was being violent towards them and when they were dying... Well, in 1964, P.S. was a gravedigger at Bingley Cemetery, but he earned extra cash washing dead bodies. Now, he actually worked two stints at the cemetery as he left for a while to work for the waterboard, but he was fired for bad timekeeping. And he returned to grave digging in June 1965 and stayed there until November 1967 before he was sacked once more for bad timekeeping. He later found a job as a long-distance lorry driver with a Bradford firm... T and W.H. Clark Holdings in Shipley. But importantly, P.S. had a morbid interest in death. Laurie Ashton, who worked with him, said one night he said he had a key to the morgue and there were two, and I quote, ripe ones they should have a look at. Laurie turned him down and he seemed disappointed. Another time he reopened a grave and chased some girls with a skull. He thought it was funny, Now, this is where the so-called dark sense of humour comes in, but I think it's much more than that. He would take fingers off of dead bodies, one time jumping down into a grave and opening up the coffin after the funeral had taken place. I just want to read a paragraph from Richard Cobb's book On the Trail of the Yorkshire R, His Final Secrets Revealed, and this is the paragraph. If couldn't get a ring off, he would take the finger, He used to go down to the tool shed and get a pair of really sharp hedging shears and snip. I've seen him do it, though I wasn't involved myself. If he was lucky, he would get two or three valuable pieces of jewellery a week. He always had plenty of money. Well, a question that I have is, well, where did he get that money from? Was it from robbing bodies? Or was it from robbing others, or both? And I'm just thinking about Fred Craven, the bookkeeper who was murdered. Money was taken too. And so I'm just throwing that in here now because this is new information and I'm going to return to Fred Craven's murder. Now, other co-workers said that Pierre seemed to get a real kick out of death, that he would look at a dead body and touch it and then eat his sandwiches without even washing his hands. Another co-worker said this. He was a really creepy sort of guy. I've never seen anyone so morbid. I'm not exaggerating when I say that he examined nine out of ten bodies he buried. He did it because he wanted to see if there were any valuables, but also because he liked it. i have seen him look at the most gruesome things which would turn any other person's stomach, but P.S. just wasn't bothered. He got his thrills from death. One time he opened a coffin whose occupant had been mangled by a train. It wasn't a body, just two plastic bags of flesh, but he got the bags out and started to look inside. I just walked away, but no one reported him. I suppose we all thought our job was pretty rotten and that P.S. was just letting off steam. Perhaps we were all as twisted as P.S. because sometimes we thought him a real scream. He would turn up in a black frock coat carrying a prayer book. Then he would stand over the grave and come up with all the ashes-to-ashes stuff. As soon as he got going for a few minutes, he would begin speaking the foulest four-letter words and the most horrible oaths. One day the body of a female magistrate came in. P.S. had known her and took delight in opening her coffin. I remember to this day that he grabbed hold of her face as hard as he could and he said, You won't be putting anyone else away now, will you, bitch? Okay, so this is exactly the sort of behaviour I was talking about in episode 25. The misogyny, the leakage, no one really speaking up or saying anything. Just chalking it up to a macabre sense of humour and letting P.S. off the hook. Although there were some who thought that he was creepy. And interestingly, Trevor Birdsall's girlfriend, Tracy, who persuaded Trevor to go to the police when she met P.S., she too felt that he was creepy. Now, the fact that P.S. spends time with dead bodies and got his thrill from death, well, that's much more than a dark sense of humour. And the way that he spoke to the female magistrate is just so disrespectful and points to misogyny. And his co-workers would also say that he would watch couples in pubs and comment on the women. Again, this is the sort of leakage I was talking about. When this sort of leakage and behaviour happens, it should be challenged. And we all have a role to play in challenging it. And the most effective challenge, as I've previously said, comes from other men. Okay, so back to the young PS. Now as a teen, PS spent a lot of time spying on prostitutes And the men using their services. So put another way, here's clear evidence of voyeurism. The watching, peeping, spying on, stalking behaviour. These are antecedent behaviours which are sometimes called in inverted commas lower level nuisance behaviours, which they're not. They're gateway offences to rape and murder and must be taken seriously. And so, like with most perpetrators, P.S.'s fantasy-derived behaviour was no longer just fantasy-based, and most oftentimes for boys, that develops in puberty. He was apparently awkward around girls and women, and struggled to talk about anything other than his obsession with cars and motorbikes. One of his good friends was a man called Keith Sugden. Now, Keith married his long-term girlfriend, and she was called Doreen, She and other women had noticed P.S.'s strange and disturbing attitude towards women. And here's one example of what she meant. P.S. was staying with Keith and Doreen on one occasion, and so was Doreen's sister, Colleen. Colleen was stood at the top of the stairs, and she was suddenly picked up and thrown to the bottom. Luckily, she was uninjured. She looked up, and there was P.S. smiling. She said it was a sickly grin that was on his face, but he never said a word. And it wasn't just women. Carl, his younger brother, said that although he remembered that P.S. to be a good brother, there was one time when P.S. held him by his feet out of the bedroom window. Carl didn't think he would actually drop him, but he did. He dropped Carl on his head, which resulted in a twisted neck, which was very sore for many weeks. Now, these are the sorts of behaviours I would expect to be hearing about. The sickly grin having pushed Colleen down the stairs, that enjoyment, the sudden blitz attack, the testing things out. And again, in his family life, if he could get away with it, he would. And there's always a pattern of behaviour. Violence happens on a continuum, not in a vacuum. That's exactly why psychological autopsies are needed and necessary, reverse engineering the profiling to understand the person and the choices they made. And often with violent and abusive men, I see humiliated fury, entitled trauma, a supercharged sense of entitlement, and shame, along with misogyny. Now, sometimes people describe the behavior as toxic, but it's much more than that. So please don't call it that. When you call it toxic, it actually masks how dangerous a man really is. It's a dangerous and highly lethal combination that harms women. And that's what I'm understanding about PS's early psychosocial development. You see, by 1965, 19-year-old PS had got himself a reputation, one that he should be treated with caution. Now, that's important community intelligence to know about too. He'd come to the notice of police for driving a car without a license and failing to display L-plates, and on May 17th, 1965, he got his first conviction. He was caught trying to break into cars on Bingley's main street. He was arrested and bailed and fined five pounds. That was the first of 11 separate motoring convictions he'd accumulate, and so that's what I would categorize as recklessness and impulsivity, which I talked about in episode 25. It also gives a nod to criminal versatility, i.e. he committed other crimes too. Now back to P.S. and his friends. One time he took Keith into the toilet of a pub one day and he showed him his penis. It was a mess, Keith said. He had contracted V.D. Now Keith told him to go to the hospital. So it was clear P.S. was going too and using prostitutes and he'd soon buddy up with Trevor Birdsall, who was three years younger than him, i.e. he could be manipulated and influenced. So his behaviour here, why I'm telling you this, is that it points to sexual promiscuity. And P.S. and Trevor Birdsall shared a love of Tetley Bitter, an obsession with cars, as well as stalking the red-light districts of Bradford and Leeds together. In fact, they both spent an alarming amount of time together watching prostitutes. Now that's important to note too, and as I've said before, Trevor Birdsall was finally pressured to do the right thing and report PS, pressured by his girlfriend, but he kept quiet for many years and he chose to say and do nothing. So my last word about Sonia. I've already mentioned the age difference. While well, Sonia was 15 years old, she was just a child, but there are some other points to mention. Sonia's parents were Ukrainian and Polish-born refugees who had fled Czechoslovakia for Britain after the war. English was rarely spoken at home, and she had an Eastern European accent that made her stand out in Yorkshire, and her mum made her clothes. Now, the fact that they were immigrants most likely meant that it was tough for the young Sonia and her sister Marianne to fit in. In 1966, 15-year-old Sonia met 19-year-old P.S., and they instantly took to each other. Now, there's a power imbalance regarding age, but also the fact that she wasn't a local girl and would most likely be keen to try and fit in, all of that would play in here. They started to spend a lot of time together. P.S. proposed to Sonia in the Midland Hotel in Bingley in 1968, and they married on her 24th birthday in August 1974 in the Baptist church in the nearby village of Clayton. So it took some time before they married. And remember, in between that time, P.S. attacked the unnamed prostitute in 1969, and he took his anger and frustration out on her when he saw Sonia was out with the young Italian man. And again, no excuse for that abuse or that violence. That's all on P.S. Sonia didn't cheat on him, but he did cheat on her. They also tried to have children, But Sonia unfortunately suffered three miscarriages, which must have been very upsetting, distressing and frustrating. And we also have to remember that Sonia was unwell. She was diagnosed with suffering from schizophrenia and there were times when she was hospitalized, which inadvertently meant that P.S. had time on his hands. Now, he said that when Sonia had a weekend job, he would go out on Saturday nights, and in his confession statement, he admitted to killing Jane MacDonald, and he said this, I think my wife may have been working that night. I have remembered that my wife started working some Friday and Saturday nights at Sherrington Private Nursing Home in Bradford. That's why I've done a lot of my attacks on a Saturday night. And yes, I did clock the Saturday night into Sunday morning attacks. Remember, I talked about them in episode four and plotted them separately on a map. And P.S. would use Sonia as an alibi when he was attacking and killing women. And him using the alibi clearly indicates to me that he didn't want to be caught. He guarded against being caught at every opportunity. And so I believe that P.S. believed Sonia gave him legitimacy a way to hide in plain sight, and to the rest of the world they presented as normal. Remember the two police officers who said, having gone round to the house to interview P.S., that they just seemed like newlyweds and that he was just doing the DIY in the kitchen. So who was in control in the relationship? Well, in my opinion, he was. He was going out when he chose to and doing what he wanted, and she knew nothing about it. Sonia was dependent on him, and she trusted in him in good faith. Now, the person who controls the emotional temperature in the relationship is normally the one in charge. And remember, he's going out meeting other women. And just because she had a voice in the relationship, it doesn't mean that she controlled it. And I don't place any weight in John Suckliff's misogynistic and sexist opinion of Sonya. And neither do I place any weight in what the journalist Barbara Jones, who'd spent some time with Sonia and interviewed her, said about her. And I'll share what she said. She said that Sonia was, in inverted commas, the most irritating, strangest and coldest person I've ever met. She's so incredibly prickly and demanding. Well, that's Barbara's opinion. It's not fact. Perhaps Sonia didn't feel comfortable with her. Perhaps Sonia didn't behave the way Barbara expected that she should, but either way, what P.S. did had nothing to do with her. Now, P.S. said that Sonia nagged him, and again, I'm not going to place any weight in his narrative about her either. She most likely was asking him to step up and meet his responsibilities when she asked him to do things. But I do believe that Sonia was deeply shocked when P.S. told her what he had done And there's no script for what to say when your husband tells you at a police station that he's a prolific serial killer. What I do know is that we look to women for clues and cues as if they somehow are to blame, and we inadvertently blame them when we do. Sonia played no part in the murders. That was all on PS. And when people keep asking questions about Sonia, it's like turning the TV channel over— as we're no longer talking about him, about P.S., the one person who is to blame. So yes, a partner, wife, family member, ex-partners, they can give us insight, and that's what I'm interested in. And what I will share with you is that every case I've been involved with where the serial killer has had a significant relationship with a woman, they've used coercive control. Now, it's often very difficult to identify and spot Often the victim doesn't even know that they're being controlled and abused, and more often all the wrong questions are asked. And interestingly, even after PS was convicted, Sonia remained loyal, which is instructive to me. And it's important to analyse and assess what happened after the trial, as this is also revealing about PS's psychopathology and also the events as they unfolded. And I've already made mention of the fact that P.S. was in Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Well, some of you might be wondering how that happened as the jury found him guilty of murder, i.e. they found him to be criminally responsible for his actions. They rejected the four psychiatrists' opinions that P.S. heard voices, and they rejected the diagnosis that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. And so it's absolutely right that you should ask, how did this happen? And I'm going to get into it in the next episode. It's really important to go into PS's behavior post-conviction as it's instructive regarding the indirect assessment of PS using the psychopathy checklist. And admittedly, I've spent more time than I originally planned deep diving PS's behavior and his decisions that he took. But I want you to hear the nuanced granular detail and the detail that I go into in terms of my analysis and my assessments. And then you can make up your own minds. So I'm signing off for now, and I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for my next episode, which is the final episode on the psychological autopsy and profile of PS and includes the PCLR, the psychopathy checklist revisited. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. here's my final two cents before the episode wraps the first is a huge thank you to all of you my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week the second is an ask if you like what i do please take two minutes to leave a five star review on whichever platform you listen to me on it really helps others find me and helps with the ratings so thank you thank you crime analyst is written produced and hosted by me laura richards sound engineering by tim hansen at half Ogre studios